0: One, and we are recording episode one thousand and three on Tuesday, November 29th, ninth, twenty twenty two, at two or six p.m. Eastern time. And Dr. Bargava just give me gave me a uh, lesson on how to pronounce her name, and I know I'm gonna mess it up, but I'll try. It's so tongue to palate. So, Dr. Aditi Bargava, Aditi, did I get it right? Anywhere close? It. All right. Yes. Well, from here on out, I'll call I'll call you Doctor Bargova from here on out. Um, but for all the new listeners, uh, you first came on about a year ago, and then you came on again with um, Doctor Malone, and then you came on again with um, Martha Fowler, and discussed uh, all things mRNA, uh, the the lipid nanoparticles, the uneven distribution of the mRNA package. Target package. I don't know if that's the correct terminology, and uh, had that uneven in in uh, distribution. And I believe you went through a PowerPoint slide your first time on here and showed that at the time, hypothesizing that that could be responsible for the seemingly uh, drastic differences in effects people have. It's not that some people kind of got myocarditis and some it's some people are get one shot and three boosters and they're fine. Some people get a shot and they're dead that evening. And so there has to be an explanation for why it is so drastically different. And your hypothesis, if I'm recalling correctly, is uneven distribution or allocation of the actual, the, the, the good stuff, the package, the MRNA. And, um, now that we're seeing, I've had on Dr. McCullough and um Sasha Latpo- Latpova and uh, and Dr. Farid, and they've all been talking about what is called, uh, in quotes, the hot lot, capital H, capital L hypothesis. And it's actually credit to my mom. I sent it to her and she responded, you need to have on Dr. Bargova about this. And I was like, you know my podcast better than me. So shout out, mom. But Dr. Bargova... Bargava, for all the new listeners, could you first introduce yourself, and then we'll we'll jump into the podcast.
1: Um, thank you, Tommy, for inviting me again. Of and um, so I am a molecular biologist, and I have been um, a, a, at University of California, San Francisco for over twenty six years, and um, I am um, a professor, and actually now. Professor Emeritus officially sort of retired and have started my own um, own, own thing just because um, there is a big need and as we can see there's a big need in terms of um, even scientists don't know how to analyze data and so... um, uh, we're, we're working on uh, some um, software that can uh, analyze big data uh, such as, you know, when you sequence huge amounts of um, genomic transcripts or proteins or call omics. So anyway, so that's what um, I'm going to be doing. But since uh, um, I'm emeritus and I've worked uh, or earned it, I still get to keep my research endeavor at the university. I just don't have to worry about raising um, or writing grants um, day after day and worry about where my um, salary is gonna come from. <laughs> so I have this freedom. And of course, as you know, I've been uh, doing that COVID uh, study on um, trying to understand how uh, COVID impacts our health, as well as whether the vaccines are actually um, effective in real world and whether or not vaccines um, induced or associated adverse events are more frequent than we think. And uh, it all stems from my interest in, uh, um, uh, in mRNA therapeutics is, um, as you know that uh, um, UCSF had filed a patent for on my behalf for a, a mRNA or RNA therapeutics, not just mRNA. There the are RNA, other kinds of RNA, RNA interference as well as, um, and uh, it was using uh, also for a delivery platform, which was using specific kinds of um, encapsulation uh, techniques, not so much as a lipid nanoparticle, which is what's being used here. So that's what um, initially had sparked my interest in this technology and um, very excited about it. <laughs> and as I read more and more about it, it became, um, I became highly concerned. Um, and so, hence my hesitation uh, in, um, in adopting this um, technology for um, vaccines in, in such, um, at such mass population level in healthy people.
0: And that's um, that's what I think the first thing I ever saw of you, I believe it was on, I think it was Aubrey Marcus, and I had, I'd seen a clip on YouTube of you discussing just that, and it was just the most measured, just concern. It wasn't some hysterical "this is the end of the world." It was just concern, and whenever, whenever healthy and well-founded concern, is immediately attacked and criticized that's kind of when the hairs on my neck go up and it just seems like something's not right like you should always it's always guy like just moved into an apartment i'm on the fifth floor i've never been higher than the second floor first thing i did was just i just found the emergency exit it's right next to my apartment i was like cool but if i had started looking for the emergency exit and all of a sudden like you know employees of the building came up and they're like, what's what's the matter with you? Why are you looking for the emergency exit? You don't trust it? I'd be like, no, I'm fine with it. It's just, you know, I am about 60 feet up. If I jump out of my window, I will die. So I would rather find the emergency exit in case of a fire. No one in their right mind would criticize that. That's kind of where my intrigue with all of this comes is. It's a very, I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know why people are so hesitant of it, of hesitant of criticism, but that's, that's kind of where I come from. And it and it seems, because everything is obviously still a, a hypothesis, or technically all sciences are still a hypothesis. But it seems like there might be an explanation or at least a coalescing of of disparate facts that are coming together and maybe justifying your initial concern and what boils down to kind of the uneven distribution. Of the the mRNA material in the shots is that is that anywhere close to correct?
1: Yes, um, I mean you're you're right about um, it's 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 a conundrum as to why um, suddenly scientific critique or dissent is being taken as uh, as though we are anti-science or anti-vaxxers or whatever, you know. So vaccine has become um, sacrosanct, right? It's it's a cult, it's a religion now. It's not uh, it's not a treatment or a drug anymore. It's like if you you either believe in it or you don't believe in it. <laughs> That's not science. No, I mean right even yeah. if you ask a scientist even about i don't want to go into where the existence of god but if somebody cannot debate that then you would call that non uh, non scientific right so if you cannot debate it then how do you call it science okay. and um like i've said before vaccines themselves have uh, in the past people there there have been instances with vaccines they've been recalled They've been refined, they have been uh, better tuned and there is no doubt that there are some vaccines that have uh, definitely helped mankind. Just like antibiotics, they've really um, helped um, our um, survival and and, um, they've been one of the most important uh, discoveries. But overuse of antibiotics Has problems. And for the longest time, the medical community didn't think about overprescribing. And now we know what's the problem. So anything that you overuse, you're going to have problems. So why uh, not with vaccines? Why you keep. uh, And in any case, vaccines are, you know, there is. um, uh, We'll stick to the mRNA vaccine. So today, what I will attempt to do maybe is to just go back and. Um, and um, uh, give a little bit more background and uh, so for people can understand. So there's obviously when you when you talk about these um, um, hot lots, I don't Mm -hmm. know, I haven't wouldn't. I haven't used that term, but there are definitely concerns that are manufacturing concerns that are um, that exist and that have been raised. Um, When you scale up technology, that's always an issue. So one of the biggest problems with this mRNA technology is that it had never been scaled up, right? It's the first time it's being used in such um, so many people and so many millions of doses. Before that, for over a decade, they were only being done as clinical trials, phase one, phase two, 100 people whatever. So when you make these things in small batches in a very controlled environment, that's very different than when you start scaling up, you're setting up manufacturing units during a shutdown when you don't have, right? So this was during the shutdown, right? Because um, the emergency use authorization happened during the shutdown. So at that point, China shut down, which is the most... um, use country in terms of manufacturing and things like that, all the raw materials, how do you move them around? There is the shipping uh, logistics of all of that, right? So you're setting up something that has never been tried in a time where you have all these other um, uh, logistic issues to deal with, and yet they are able to set it up in um numerous places numerous countries uh, obtain all this raw material from magically from wherever um so those are um you know things that anybody who is um uh, n- not who wants to think should should think right i mean mm-hmm. when you are uh, if if i'm i cook at home and that's great but if i were to set up a restaurant tomorrow without any experience to scale it up to feed um, maybe 100 people a day uh, at different times coming in it's uh, maybe i'm setting up myself for a failure maybe yeah. i will succeed maybe i'll not for me to be able to then reproduce the same kind of cooking that i do for five people instead of that for 500 people day after day without any experience it is um a little bit hard to imagine um, yeah. you know without any uh, you know what kind of raw materials how many raw you know do I need what kind of um, cooking utensils do I need how much of um, spices do I need what's the combination none of that I've tried and I'm gonna just do it and I'm a spectacular success well okay, maybe yeah um, but you would think
0: yeah during a pandemic, and then if anyone says, you know, Dr. Bargova creates great omelets, but now she's cooking for 10,000 of us. And did you know she's immune from being sued by any of us if we get food poisoning? Like, you know, that's when it's like, all right, there's there's grounds to at the very least question. it.
1: Right. Well, so let's start with um, the issue with uh, with mRNA or or. Or why mRNA? So um, I guess traditional vaccines, which are um, for polio, chickenpox, mumps, measles, rubella, they are mostly um, viruses that cause the disease. They are taken and then um, normally you grow them in chicken eggs. And so as you grow them from the first time to second time to 15th time, um, they now start thinking that chicken is their new host and it takes time and you have to go through that process so that it no longer uh, is thinking of humans as its host and it's thinking of chicken as its host. It's replicating there. And so it becomes weakened if you like, because when you re-give it to humans, it's going to take that much amount of replication time before it starts to think of humans as its host. So in a way, if you didn't control that, that becomes a zoonotic transfer, do you understand? So if those chicken eggs (laughs) leaked or didn't didn't get contained, you would have now a, a, a chicken epidemic or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so now you take those that virus uh, from grown in chicken eggs, and then you um, weaken it further by either chemically uh, mixing it with something so that it kills it, or by heat inactivating it, and then you give it back to people. And and in that case, uh, obviously the root of infection is not the same, but it um, it it still does what a natural infection would do because it's largely unmodified. And yes, it's not in the same uh, route, and that's important. But nonetheless, um, the virus is there, and your immune system will uh, make antibodies to a different part of the virus, and you will get this polyclonal protection. Now, the problem with that is that the number of virus particles that can be grown in each egg are um, finite, and so you need a lot of chicken eggs, and you need uh, a lot of time right so if it takes five days to grow in one cycle you need five times 15 uh, 75 days before you get the final product and now it's it's too late right because we are in this uh, chaos and people are dying and if you don't do something we are going to die tomorrow we don't have 75 days to wait so now we need something tomorrow except that even MRNA can't be made tomorrow because that needs to be scaled. The raw materials for making um, um, MRNA are expensive. Um, it's not just that you need one raw material. so you need this uh, you need a template. So what I did is I'm gonna try and try and explain. so uh, let's just say that um, you know, RNA is ribonucleic acid and uh, normally um, uh, uh, there's a special kind of RNA that will make protein and it's called mRNA or message RNA because it takes the message from DNA um, or even from if it's an RNA genome from RNA and um, makes it into another language, which is the language of protein. So to make uh, mRNA, uh, these mRNA vaccines in um, in the lab, we have to um, make first a reverse copy in a DNA. So let's say this is your DNA, uh, like a circle. Okay. Um, in this case, it's um, whatever it's, uh, and each of these beads is your, um, um, you know, your nucleotide. It's uh, and so before it can be um, made into a message in the lab, this DNA, which is we call it in a plasmid, it's normally circular. So I, I can't, um, but it has to be made linear. And that is done by an enzymatic cut because the, the start site from where it's going to make RNA from this DNA template is here and the end site is right behind it. So if it's not linear, it's going to go on making this round, round stuff. It doesn't know where to stop. Okay. And so it has to be made linear like this so that it knows this is my start and mm-hmm. this is my end.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So now, um, this is an enzymatic cut. Um, when we do it in, in, in a test tube, we can't guarantee that hundred percent of the molecules will be cut. So let's just yeah. say. For simplicity, we we put 100 of these plasma molecules in, in a test tube, and when we put the en- enzyme, we don't know if all 100 will get cut. At best, maybe 90, and 10 will not. Okay. Now let's say 90 are cut. Then it starts making this RNA, uh, and it goes from one end, which we call um, for directionality, the five prime end, it's because of the chemical structure or the upstream end to the downstream end or the three prime end. So it'll make the enzyme RNA polymerase will bind here and start making this, uh, copying each of those and making your RNA from this DNA template. Now to make that, uh, it needs raw material. So it needs this enzyme called RNA polymerase Ball two, which is what is in vivo, but in um, in test tubes, we don't have, add RNA polymerase two. We, uh, from this DNA template, we add other enzymes called uh, um, T3 or T7 or SP6 polymerases, which are of bacterial origin. Then they need the raw materials of RNTPs or ribonucleotides, and then they need um, uh, magnesium, and then they need some other, you know, obviously um, other stabilizing agents. But what happens is when you start scaling it up and you start adding too many of the ribonucleotides, they, um, th- there's, a, there's a balance. They start um, binding to magnesium and you take away or squelch or chelate magnesium, which means the enzyme now does not have magnesium available. And if that's the case, the enzyme is not going to work. So um, we have these scaling issues in in the lab, um, and there's an optimum um, a concentration or con- amount above which scaling is extremely difficult. So I'm, you know, they would have to make millions and millions of these reactions before they can get the amount of doses that's needed to be given to people and of course you're setting up these independent reactions um, which will vary right so we just Mm -hmm. in in one tube you can have out of 100 maybe only 50 were cleaved and so the other 50 will be making these round round transcripts or messages now that's not the only thing once the message is made if it stays like this um, and you give it in the cells, it's going to get degraded because this is not protected. So um, so what it needs to do is it needs to then um, add, if now from that language, you've gotten another language, right? So now it needs to add at the five prime end something which is called a cap. So, and then on the other end, a tail, mm-hmm. which is a poly tail. And this is the hallmark of, eukaryotic or mammalian RNA, so that this is now going to be made into protein without this cap and the tail, the RNA is not stable and it's not going to be recognized by our protein machinery and cannot be made into protein. So this is the other challenge. In In vivo, in our cells, there's all this process that's going on simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're making this in, in a test tube, from that template, which didn't have any um, information to add this five prime um, cap or a three prime poly a tail. So you have to add those ingredients in the test tube to add this capping and tailing. And that process itself is not 100% efficient either. So if you wanna do it in one step there, you know, there are there's a two step process and you can use enzymes which are much more effective and they can be 100% effective in adding caps, but um, those are two-step process, which means you have to, after you've made RNA, you have to purify and then you have to add another set of enzymes and buffers and blah, blah, blah. So that takes time. So you um, take that shortcut and you do a one-step process. And so as the mRNA is being made, it'll also add the cap and the tail, but that is only 60 to 80% efficient. So that means now, Um, let's just say we got 100 mRNA molecules, only 60 to 80 of them will have the cap and the tail. The remaining 40 to 20, what are you going to do with them? Yeah, They're not going to be making any protein, but they count towards your microgram that's going to be given to people. Got it. Right? So now you've got that. So if you don't purify it, so let's say you purify it, and you purify it normally. The pur- and you have to purify it because you have to remove this DNA template from your mixture. Because if you don't, and you give it to us, then this is going to make RNA in you. Okay. Right, because we have the enzymes, um, or it can interfere. It, it it may not make it in us because um, it may not have all the signatures, but it may it may cause issues. So you have to get rid of the DNA template, and you also have to get rid of all the other enzymes that were used to make uh, the RNA and then used to cap and things like that. So you have to purify. And you have to purify, so they normally use what is called uh, size um, exclusion chromatography, um, because that's more of... um, Faster in in the lab when when we do it, what we do is we um, actually precipitate or um, um,
0: freeze not freeze but not not freeze we'll cool but down. from the
1: solution we precipitate it out, and the precipitation um, uh, ensures that only um, RNA can precipitate and along with DNA. Um, but nucleotides are the raw materials and the enzymes don't precipitate. So we normally add like a salt, like a lithium salt, or a sodium salt, or an ammonium salt, and then you add alcohol and you precipitate it out, and then you wash it and you resuspend it, and that's what we use. But you can't do that for you know this millions and millions of batches that are going on. Um so they use uh, normally some sort of um, chromatography to separate it or a column or whatever. So um, if you then use, um, let's say I wanna make sure that I have all of the mRNA molecules that have the cap and the tail, then you can have a column that will make sure that it binds the caps and the tails. And so you anything that cannot bind or didn't have that will just go through. Okay. but that's a very laborious and expensive process and you may end up breaking the tail because it's fragile you may end up so um they use size exclusion but when you start doing size it's not like it's a precise size it's it's you know there's a very uh, small difference between the mrnas that get capped uh, and tailed in size compared to that don't get. And the original template is also of the same size. So all of them will now be in this mush and that's what you're gonna get. So yes, you may have excluded uh, the proteins, the enzymes and the raw materials um, to a large degree, but not completely. Now, all this is being done in a machine or whatever, right? So this is where I think, the issue happened with 1.6 million doses of Moderna vaccine in Japan, where um, um, the machine introduced, uh, I guess, some steel particles in um, while packing or maybe while um, allocating it into those vials. How they were missed, who knows? They're not like um, microscopic or whatever. They were fairly big uh, metallic uh, particles and now given to people. so people died Mm -hmm. obviously because they're going to get lost in your um, and maybe they were uh, if they were not given in the muscle they were it went into their veins so these people four people died and so moderna recalled all 1.6 million doses but um, but we're not even in that talking about all this gamush that's there right and so the question is you have now. You are. You have all of this. You have to package this into. This is not going to be taken up by your cells, so you're going to have to package this inside these what they're calling lipid nanoparticles. So uh, remember, like like I told you last time, the lipid nanoparticles are like imagine bubbles, right? So you mm-hmm. take a um, um, when you blow bubbles, you take that little stick and you start blowing bubbles. Now the circle from which you're gonna blow that bubble is the same size, but the bubbles that you get are of different sizes. So you can take the lipid and uh, you mix it with this RNA, and um, the the RNA is going to get uh, encased or encapsulated in this lipid uh, thing or lipid nanoparticle. The problem is that this lipid nanoparticle is not the same size, right? So you can have this size, or you can have this size, and in that there'll be more of these. Okay. Right. So that's if it's fun. if it's one size, then that's great. You know exactly every lipid nanoparticle has only hundred molecules. But because there are different sizes, some can have hundred, some can have two hundred, some can have fifty, some can have ten.
0: Yes. Big
1: variability. Now you take all of those different sizes and you put it in a vial. Right? That's the vial. And now it has to be, uh, it's frozen. So um, when you uh, bring it down to room temperature or you thaw it, normally, uh, again, when we want to break open a cell, which is also made up of uh, its outer layer is a lipid bilayer, we do this freeze thaw process, which is you freeze it and then you shock it and you thaw it and it breaks open. So yes, to prevent that from breaking open, um, they make sucrose or some sort of sugar so that that acts as a cushion and so you don't uh, rupture it open. But nonetheless, let's just say, you know, even some of them uh, open up, then you've lost uh, that particular amount because that's not going to be taken up by cells. The other issue with that is that once you um, thaw it, now you have to dilute it before you give it to people. So you're diluting it one is to three. The assumption is that that one third, one third, one third will all have, you know, whatever, 30 nanograms or 50 nanograms, which Pfizer or Moderna, whichever dose you're looking at. But that's not true because the size distribution, you cannot control in that suspension, right? So in that one third, you could get everything
0: Mm -hmm.
1: or you could get, uh, instead of 30, you could get 50 or you could get 60. And the next person may get only 10 and the other person may get nothing or very little. So, uh, you've already created that um, that um, dose discrepancy. Now uh, the issue with that is that if a person got instead of 30, 50 um, micrograms, it may, and you know we are not really um, accounting body weight or any of that into taking that into consideration, right? So, or, uh, it could have sat out for a longer time by the time the third person got it or whatever it is. There are so many issues or uh, they took it out from the freezer, put it on um, ice to thaw, and then you know the the time variability is between one side versus the other side. None of that can be controlled. Uh, you saw a lot of people giving uh, these uh, injections without wearing gloves. RNA is extremely labile. Um, the other issue that was pointed out by the the people who um, um, uh, were working on this Moderna and Pfizer, the challenges that they were facing is that this mRNA that we make uh, normally it can the the nucleotides that it has they are very susceptible to degradation. So to prevent that, they use these modified um, nucleotides. So instead of you know if Let's say normally it would be all uh, all um, only uh, there are four nucleotides, of so four different types. But one of them, which is uracil, is is uh, replaced, and um, now you get this uh, pseudo uracil, which makes the mRNA more stable. Now they have documented uh, Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech. That, that modified RNA actually stays around for a long time. So what happens is normally our um, each mRNA has a particular, what we call half-life. That mm-hmm. means it will stay in the cell for a certain number of hours or days, depending on what this half-life is. And after that, it's degraded. But once you modify it, uh, we don't know what the half-life is. They never tested it. So, uh, but what they did find is that that modified mRNA stays around for weeks and weeks. So at this point, we do not know for how long that mRNA is staying in us and where all it goes because it's it's being given um, uh, in the muscle and your immune cells take it and then they circulate and so you don't know. And then, um, so they never did the biodistribution study. The other issue is that, you could have in this mixture mRNAs that are not capped or polytailed, so they're not going to be making any protein, but they are there now. so and if they are stable and not getting degraded, what are they doing? They're not making protein. They're hanging around. Are they um, but because they're non-self, my uh, prediction is that they're evoking an immune response, which is, um, different than what is predicted. The, the third issue is that these um, mRNA, because they're hanging around and they're non-self, we have certain enzymes called uh, DNA th- theta polymerases, which are very good at taking these non-self um, DNA and RNA and integrating it into our genome. Because just like CRISPR, which is um, an immune system for bacteria, uh, which works uh, by recognizing um, the virus that's going to invade it or pathogen that's going to invade it by comparing it to the the sequence it had integrated in its genome from the, using CRISPR before, probably like that we have uh, you know fairly large amount of our uh, genome, 40% um, or more, has these uh, viral signatures in us, which are called line and sign elements. So maybe it's integrated so that in future um, w- viruses that come in, we can see that they that we've had them before and they are there for whatever purpose that we don't fully understand so so this integration can happen in um, in places where the genome has key function. And if that happens, then who knows what the outcome will be for that particular person. So there are so many steps that we don't understand, that we don't haven't studied. And um, unfortunately, just by saying that we have an emergency or declaring it doesn't mean that you can bypass all this. And none of the um, studies that were done before this was deployed actually even address it. So you would be surprised to know that even in animal studies, they had never done repeat dosing. So here we are repeatedly dosing. And when they did, uh, in, in the few studies that were done, um, I don't remember by which company they found that the uh, um, lipid nanoparticle redosing causes toxicity. It's toxic. So, um, it's just amazing that uh, we knew so little even though the technology has potential there are a lot of issues that we haven't worked out that need to be worked out before it can be deployed especially in healthy people now when you when you think about somebody who is got a chronic disease where the quality of life is really bad you know they or they're not functioning uh, anywhere near what a normal human being is functioning and if you then take a therapeutic which is not tested let's say like like this and give it to them and they they show improvement in um in quality of life and things like that then the the benefits are so much more than the risk and adverse mm-hmm. events that they may have that and and it's it's confined to a subset of people but vaccines are different we give them to healthy people hmm. so um so so that's you know your in terms of just trying to touch the just the surface of this iceberg of um what can be the issues in mrna uh, production and um Um, this um, batch effects or whatever you may call
0: it. So all of these, um, excuse me, all of these, all of these points in the production of it that may cause uneven distributions. You maybe aren't too worried about if you have a comorbidity. If you're older, you might look at it and go like, "Yeah, like it's fine. It's." You know, if you're in a car crash going eighty miles an hour, yeah the airbag isn't a hundred percent safe, but you kind of don't have any other option. so it's it's kind of the best thing for it. But you don't want to apply that to everyone. So if you have if you don't know how many the 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 uh, plasmids are cleaved, and then you don't know, so if that's you know anywhere from sixty to eighty to one hundred percent, and then if you have the actual blowing of the bubbles and then you don't know so you don't so you already have the what 60 to 80 to 100% that makes up x mass and if you then take up x mass and know that you have to dilute it three times you're blowing the bubbles you're already taking something that is anywhere from 60% to 100% of what you need and now you're dividing that into three separate well in this example th- three sec three separate you know, bubbles and you don't know how much is going into each of those. And then once it gets into the cell or into the individual, we now don't, we don't have long-term studies. We don't know what's going to happen to each person. And then also tied in is this, the pseudo uracil or pseudo uridine. We don't know how long that's in there. So there are these multiple moments of uncertainty that, I'm terrible at math, but they multiply, right? If I want to, you know, if I want to, whatever, if I take a deck of cards and, you know, what are the chances of me pulling out an ace? Well, it's four and 52. Okay, but what if I take that deck of cards, shuffle it, and then pull it out again? Well, it's, it's four out of 52 times four out of 52. So your chances of certainty go lower and lower and lower. By having multiple moments of that uncertainty being duplicated and then the wild card of you're ramping up production for the first time ever of a new technology during a pandemic and then not even including the fact that you might get steel particles. All of those lapses might be acceptable if this was a modified Ebola, you might look at that and go, it's not perfect.
1: Well, I'm going to interrupt you there. And I say, no, I don't think it's acceptable under any condition. Okay. Um, and I don't think, um, so um, to add to all of that is, of course, you know, you're giving that mRNA, but it's our cells ultimately that have to make the protein. So you mm-hmm. don't know. Um, what's the efficiency there? And it depends where it gets to. So maybe your heart cells are more effective in making the protein compared to your liver cells or yeah. whatever. I mean, just yeah. um, but i I just want to correct that um the the example that you gave about, Um, you know, giving it to people with comorbidities or immunosuppression that no, it's not acceptable. What I was talking about is, let's just say you have a terminal disease like cancer or something like that. It's, it's different because um, you don't have, let's say hope or your quality of life is so bad. Then you, you might be willing to try something that's radical, where you, you know, or uh, just because you're desperate. But there, this is not a desperate scenario. You, Most healthy people, we know that 80 to 90% of the people didn't really have severe disease, right? Yeah. Oh, and even uh, with the numbers that we have right now, 2% of the people died. Yes, 2% globally is a big number. And um, if we say that's not acceptable why is it acceptable for people to die in wars wars are yeah. for choice this is not cho- this is not a choice we send our healthiest youngest people train them fittest people and send them out to die yeah. that's acceptable how's that acceptable yeah we, we, you know, there are so many things that are just not right, right? I mean, why is it acceptable just because, you know, it, it, freedom and literally, like, I, I don't want to get into things that are political, but it, 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 there are a lot of things that don't make sense and, uh, but we do it. Um, assault wep- weapons, why are they freely available? It it's not about your right. What about my right to live, right? Sure. Because you could have somebody who's uh, unstable or whatever. So you have to have some checks and balances, and uh, it's um, um so this uh, without testing this, without having um a technology that you can uh, feel confident about it's a, it's a disservice you're doing to the society and to science and you you know it's um and then people who are raising legitimate concerns who understand this like me i would not call myself an expert just because every time i go and um you know um, look at certain things or look at my data i learn more new things and so there's still so much to learn and still so much to discover that um, I think uh, you remain a student all your life and in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in not just in science, I think in any field, right? There's just so much going on. Um, and so we, um, but in some ways when we work like that, we, um, we have to wear blinders, right? So if we are, just think about what's happening in a cell, you know, if you're looking for a particular protein and let's just say that protein is like a, red color Tesla car. So now, and but you have to, uh, to imagine, you know, not just LA traffic, but all of US traffic is in your, because that's the number of proteins that are going around. And you have to only, uh, you can only focus on red color Teslas,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it doesn't mean that the other cars don't exist.
0: You're not in a vacuum.
1: You, those exist and they can, influence or change how the the red color Teslas will drive or where they may end up or whatever. But if you only just uh, you discount everything else and only focus on those and the outcomes there, you can reach very wrong conclusions just because uh, you're only looking at how one red color Tesla impacts the other red color. You forgot that in between there could have been, a Toyota or another truck or something else that could have then influenced how this red Tesla behaved with the other red Tesla. So that's how you know things end up happening, and that's what they're doing and cherry picking information, right? So when we do this in in um, in vitro or even in animals, things that don't work out normally, they're ignored. And they're ignored uh, or they are discarded or they they say, oh, I don't understand instead of saying, or if nothing happened, that's like a negative data and you don't report it. So there's a lot of uh, gaps that we have. It's not um, a lot of time, there's no control done, right? So there's no control here to say, is this really effective? What if we just took some... Um, um, other viruses mRNA and put it in, do we get similar kind of protection just because it's non-self? Because if you are only counting it by uh, measuring antibodies, antibodies are made to an epitope, meaning this, uh, let's say from this RNA, you get, um, I'm gonna pick up another one, a different kind of a, this is a protein, right? And the protein gets folded. Mm -hmm. So as in when it gets folded, the surface of the protein that's exposed is is what the antibody is going to get made to. So that's called an epitope. The folding of this protein is dependent on the speed by which this mRNA is being made into um, the protein as, um, as, as each amino acid is added. And that depends on the environment. So for example, the fold and other proteins that are there. So for example, if it's being made in your heart, uh, cell, it may fold differently than if it's made in your liver cell. And so the epitope that may get exposed or the shape may be different. So the antibodies are not going to be the same as, and, and yet we are comparing that to natural infection versus the, the vaccine antibody. So that itself is very flawed. And the second is that when you get a natural infection, uh, the thing that neutralizes those neutralizing antibodies or IgA. Are not made to spike protein. They're made to other parts of the virus. So this, whereas when uh, the studies that pe- most people are talking about, oh, you have a high antibody titer. They're looking at non-neutralizing antibodies like IgG or IgMs, uh, and then they they just say it. You know, it's like just saying it doesn't matter. They're just people, and then if you have people, uh, you have protection. You know, they're protecting your house, but all people are not the same. What if, you know, those, if some people were trained soldiers or whatever, they will protect it much more, even if the numbers were not the same as the untrained people compared to. So so you can't just compare um, antibody levels and just say, oh, that's it. You know, you have to see what kind of antibodies. And none of that is being talked about it's all lost in this noise and the chaos that's being created so i think i don't have uh, anything more to add we are coming up to an hour
0: no it's it's well well, two things is is people are talking about that the difference is, is someone like you or someone like dr malone who you guys are humble and you won't call yourselves experts, but compared to the rest of us. Sure, yeah. And any person that's truly learning anything knows that they're a lifelong student. That's a given. But for all intents and purposes, you guys are experts. You are you guys are the individual saying there are too many. There, you're the ones taking time out of your day to explain to someone like me and my listeners with some beads about what is going on and the dangers in it. You're not getting paid for this. I know I certainly am not. These are people that care about what's going on and they want to inform you most of that, 99% of what you told me today, I didn't know. Now, if you are someone that knows all of that. And you have malicious intent. To make money to corner the market. Those are the people that are going to simplify it down to you need a couple of these. It's like recharging a battery. It's like proteins defending your house. It's like soldiers. It's all good. Don't worry about it. And then if you do seek out, well, what are what are opposing voices say? And then those are all squashed. That's where the problem is, is. You are trying to explain it to people and you can't even find that. And to to kind of backtrack to what I what I said earlier about it being acceptable I was using that as an example. I personally don't believe it's ever acceptable to force anything on anyone ever. That's my own personal it's my choice. Leave me alone. Get out of my house. Leave me alone. I, it's not acceptable. It is always a choice I want to make. If I want to sign up to get on one of Elon Musk's rockets and go to Mars, I might blow up on the launch pad. I might die in space. I might die on impact. That's my choice. I'm an adult. I'm 32. I want to die on Mars. That's up to me. But it's not something that you can force people to do. And and this is again, that's where my that's where my decision ends. But let's play with the idea of if you were allowed be allowed to force this, you can't shut down all criticism. You can't give legal immunity and financial immunity to the companies. You can't have a widespread coordinated, suppression of all dissenting voices, especially when it's not an emergency. And as you said, and as I agree, not even for Ebola, especially not for something where the vast majority of us, I've had COVID twice. It sucked. And then I got over it. I think the last time you and I spoke, I had COVID and I told you, I was like, I'm still going to the gym. And you were like, don't do that. But like, you're fine. That is where all the problems lie with this, is even in the absurd thought experiment exceptions, it's Ebola and it's during a war, which still is not acceptable. We're not even there, though. We're for a virus with a 99-point-whatever-percent survival rate, and you're quashing all criticism, and it is a patented technology where these companies are printing money and they are in and there is you know they're in bed with with you know government paying for advertisements and like you said you know you don't want to get in political but like that is unfortunate it's a pandemic touching every person on earth you you can't avoid the much like the the red tesla cars and all the traffic of the united states you can't just say we're only going to focus on the red tesla cars there are a lot of other cars out there much more in that same way. We can't focus in on just the vaccine and go, I don't want to talk about the politics of left or right or America versus Russia or China and Mexico. Good luck. (laughs) You can't, you can't separate them. That's an unfortunate fact. And really what it all comes down to is you have to, you have to boil it down to the most fundamental things and say, if this is going to be so complex and touch so many aspects of of life on Earth, you have to have some ground rules, and it's your right to say no and uh, your right to discuss it. And when those are shut down, that's when it's not good. No time in human history, ever, not once, have the people censoring and shutting down scientific debate been on the right side. Never once. There was, I'm sure there were a lot of people 500 years ago that were saying that you did, they just need to shut Galileo up. He's spreading misinformation. Copernicus is up there thinking that we revolve around the sun and he's spreading harmful disinformation. Yeah, it eventually you will be proven wrong. And the difference is, is no one died because of that. Well, I know they, they killed the astronomers. No one died because of that. Now people are dying. Now, kids are getting myocarditis. There's a lot wrong with this, but I know i've you're muted. I can't hear you.
1: No, I've muted myself. Because, oh, okay.
0: Just, oh, oh sorry, yo, you' dude, are talking I, about.
1: I have to go in five yep. minutes, but I think I mean, it's not a discussion that i we can have, but I you know, uh, in terms of uh, the what led to this this stage we are at, but in in short, we are here because I think in the past, um, every time they tried to get a vaccine going, let's say for the SARS or MERS or Ebola, uh, the the pandemic or the epidemic died by itself. So billions of dollars were spent in developing those vaccines; they could never be deployed. And now we have, you know, so much of loss. And the pandemic went away. So what do you do? So this time around, they had to make sure the pandemic stayed and you could deploy it even though it was not needed. Because if they didn't, um, we would be in the same stage. And literally, Moderna and BioNTech were dying. As of August of 2019, they were dying. And suddenly, they didn't have anything that was working for them. And suddenly, in six months, they are a spectacular success. Doesn't happen you have to question that and it it never can you know when something is too good to be true it's too good to be true yes uh, but um the just one point that i want to make is that what, the the issue that we deal with these days is the difference between people like me who were trained old school way and um dr malone and um others um there's still a you know in the last couple of decades there has been a lot more advancement in technology in um, development of kits and things like that for um, uh, experiments that we do in the lab so when um, i was growing up doing my phd we didn't have kits we had to make all the solutions so we know what goes into each of those what's the process things like that and we we can troubleshoot um a lot of my students can't they they you buy the kit off the shelf you just mix one thing with the other and that's it and once if they sometimes run out of something they don't even have the know-how to look up and sometimes that missing ingredient could be something like you know 100 millimolar sodium chloride and they are like oh We need to wait before it comes. Why do you need to wait? Can you look up what is the thing? You can just make it. They don't have that know-how. So most people actually don't have that know-how. So they don't really know. It's like, oh, we have all this. It goes into this black box and you get this out, right? So Mm -hmm. um, all the... they don't know how to troubleshoot. They don't know what we're going to get out of it. So they, they don't understand. A lot of people don't understand. And the other thing that's happened is the siloing of um the areas, right? So if you are a neuroscientist, you only study certain aspects of brain. Even in there, it's, you know, whatever. You're an immunologist. You're studying only the immune system. But the immune system doesn't work in isolation. It's working in coordination it's there to protect your other organs if you are you know a a renal fellow you're only studying kidney but the kidney doesn't work again in isolation it's doing because of what else is going on in your body so um, that's the other downside of um, people these days which they they don't just have this cross pollination if you like And I feel very fortunate that I do have that and I've worked in various fields. So if you, like I've said before, you know, if each of those areas is a different language, it's like, you know, if you're speaking English and Italian and Spanish and you can cross talk and you, so you have a much more richer life. Similarly, I feel fortunate that I am able to understand molecular and cell biology and I can understand physiology and I understand immunology because I study stress responses and there is no part of your body that stands as a bystander and say, Oh, you deal with this stressor and I'm Mm -hmm. going and resting today. I'll come back to it another time. No, it doesn't happen. And I realized that that just working with the brain, um, to look at stress responses is incomplete, so um, I've had to learn a lot and cross pollinate, and so I think I'm fortunate. So with that, I have to go, but uh, it was fun talking to you. And if there are any questions, we can, uh, you know, take them later.
0: Okay, Dr. Bargava, thank you so much. You are absolutely brilliant. Thank you for the free science lesson. It's been ten years since I took biochemistry, so little i think i had a little uh, awaken some old demons remembering caps and tails and plasmids and five and three and attga and whatever so that that was bad but uh thank you so much thank you for your time thank you for the the wonderful lesson and um yeah thank you for hanging out with me for an hour i will talk soon yes ma'am i will send it to you when it's uploaded and uh hope you have a wonderful rest of your day thank you so much dr Bargava.